Well, we are just so pro- so delighted to have you, Dr. Tomas Makamara, with us this morning. And um, for those of you that will be tuning in on podcasts uh, on the diaspora, and those of you who may come to this and are not maybe even usual listeners to Scarif Bay Community, Community Radio, or to the work of Tomas Makamara, I have to say, Tomas is our leading, no, I don't say a leading, he is the leading oral historian and author and proud uh, Bodaik man. And uh, so we, we, we've got that out there now, Tomas. You're very welcome. Thank you very much, Karen. Glad to be here. So you're here today to talk primarily about the imminent publication of your new book. And I want to, I read a number of testimonials that were written um, about the book. And um, this one really just caught my eye. And it's just a couple of lines. And it's from the writer Dervila Murphy. And uh, the travel writer, and she just, she, I think she just really absolutely, for me, got this so right. As an oral historian, Tomas Makamara is remarkably perceptive, persistent, and patient, and more, she says. But she finishes with saying, our millennials need this book to remind them of the heritage, the worst, and the best of it. And like all good leaving her questions, discuss. Yes, uh, <laughs> I'm delighted to discuss uh, Durbla Morphy Carroll, because... God, it's, it's been a remarkable experience for me uh, getting to know her. I got to know her through my professional work and in, in, in heritage. And I spent a, a good bit of time with her in recording her memories and her life story. And, you know, she's one of those people who when you go in to actually document her story, and, and unfortunately for me, she doesn't actually talk to that many people, but we managed to form a connection in a project I'm working with Water for County Council land. And... She started interviewing me, which is often the case when you go into people like this. And she became, you know, when I when I talked about my work, she was really, really genuinely interested in it and wanting to read some of it. And she read the time of the tens. And then um, what was it? When I explained to her about the Scarf Martyrs, she wanted to read that, too. So I arranged through the publishers to get the manuscript to her. And she was really kind to, to, to say what she said about the work. But I think we would definitely share a, a, a common understanding of the, you know, the value of human experience, the value of trying to understand the world through people on the ground. You know, Dervla travelled throughout the world, as you know, mm. and, you know, spent all of that time speaking to local people and, and trying to understand what the experience of the common man or woman on the ground was and, and gained so much of an insight through those conversations, through those encounters. So we certainly would share um, a similar approach from that point of view. Yeah. And she's just a remarkable person. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about feminism and, uh, you know, all of the rest of it throughout the world at the moment. But I think that Dervla Murphy is the best example of a strong woman or a strong person I've, I've encountered. We just managed, I've managed to have this introduction without mentioning the name, the title of the book. So um, we are talking about the Scarif Martyrs, um, War, sorry, war, murder, and memory. War, Lise murder, Clare, and yeah. memory, Lise Claire. And how does how do you feel at this point? It was painstaking research. Um, yeah, it's a good question, Carol, because I feel different, we'll say, than before the time of the tens, or even days of hunger before that. I, I do. I was thinking about this morning coming down here to talk to you, and that, that's one of the things I was thinking about. Like, I do definitely feel different. I'm not sure if I can explain it, if it's apprehension, um, you know, I definitely feel a sense of pride 
side in the sense that I've spent so many years trying to to pull the story together and I mean my approach as you know has been to spend a lot of time on this and I believe philosophically that you have to spend a lot of time and to tell the story of the Scarif Martyrs which some historians might look as a as a local incident you know but there is so much depth when you get closer to something you see it more clearly and you see that there's more to it um, so it, like 17 years was required in that context to, to pull it all together so there's a certain sense of pride maybe in hopefully having dedicated all that time and, and hopefully that'll be reflected in the book because obviously you know I'm from the area as well and it's you know probably the most significant event in the area obviously then maybe there's a bit of apprehension there too about you know how how it will be received and ultimately I hope that you know I've done the story justice I've done the the four men justice but more broadly the story and its its importance to the kind of historical consciousness of of East Clare generally um I, I hope that I've done it some justice so yeah it's maybe a little bit of apprehension a little bit of pride and um just looking forward to people reading it now and hopefully they'll be they'll be happy with it Tomas could I just ask you um you, this is a project that has sort of been like a, a lifelong story and uh, for for you and from your knowledge of the events when you started doing in-depth research for it to where you've wound up now has your perception of the events your sort of understanding of the events obviously has been greatly enhanced by it but we said is there anything that sort of stands out in relation to you know is that if you now know what you know if you had known back then what you sort of know now uh, we said the depth of knowledge that you have you have gathered in it has it done anything to enhance or take away from the story or is there a big wow moment there for you where you sort of said okay this event you, you alluded to it earlier that some people refer to it as just a local event we'll say that took place in East Clare but from what I can gather the your opinion on that has uh, is different in that it is deeply effective uh, on, a, on a, a broader level but you know I said how things were um, maybe broadcast at the time how you know information was communicated in relation to it what, what was the big thing you found in relation to all that yeah again it's a really good question because uh, I, I've mentioned this before that I would say probably maybe eight years ago we'll say uh, so we had the 90th anniversary in 2010 and there was a, say I had done a significant amount of research at that time and you know I, I certainly know some historians you know who, who would have been able to put a book out with that amount of information and maybe I could have done too but I certainly know now that 10 years later my the, the knowledge level has increased the information level has increased because there's always more information out there and they can be tiny fragments but when you gather up those fragments put them together they can form some some great meaning but the most critical point and you mentioned it there was the understanding and and that's really what I'm always trying to aim at as a historian it's not to in, to increase levels of, of data or information it's not just to increase levels of knowledge. All that's required. But really what I'm aiming at is understanding. And unless you understand what you're writing about, unless you try and understand East Clare in the winter of 1920, the experience of all of that, the experience of McMahon, Rogers and Gilday as three active volunteers, the experience of Michael Egan as someone outside of that movement, the experience of the families of, of having something that's almost incomprehensible you know, pushed on them in terms of the murder of their their sons. 
you know, my challenge was to try and understand all of that, not just at a factual level, but at an emotional level, as far as I could. Um, so definitely the years between, let's say, I started this, there's a photograph my mother found um, uh, above at home. Very recently, I put out a post about 17 years of research on Facebook, but it was after that my mother found a photograph of the day I interviewed Paddy Gleeson in 2004, because my father took a photograph, and that would have been the very first interview that I did for the Scarf Martyr. So between that day, um, you know, there was a great insight gained from listening to Paddy Gleeson, right? Because he was somebody on the ground. He was up here, up the road from us at Scarf Church. The night the bodies came back, he was at the funeral, etc. He knew the three men. But from that first interview to today, my understanding certainly has increased, but only because I've spent time not only researching, but listening. And that was the critical thing, listening to people, listening to family members, listening to many, many different people and, and, and looking at many, many different angles, speaking to families of the RIC. You know, I, I, I track those down, speaking to families of the the uh, of, of, for example, a man who was executed by the area in East Clare. So trying to get an insight from from whatever perspective I could get. You talked about wow moments. There's lots of wow moments for me and they'd be for different reasons. Somebody else might find a wow moment somewhere else. But one of the things that the book will 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 show is that I've I've managed to track down one of the relations of one of the people who shot the four men, and that would be one of the more significant moments for me because it took, I would say, fourteen to fifteen years uh, until I found him, um, the grandson of one of the men involved on the bridge. So that was a significant moment in terms of actually. You know, it's it's we focus on the four victims, obviously, but to try and get uh, some sense of people who were on the other side of the gun was uh, was difficult, obviously, mm. but I managed to track it down. You speak often about a, a local woman uh, from the parish of Scarif, who was Kathleen Nash, um, who later lived in Bodike, yep. and, and you're meeting with her in a nursing home in Ross Cray. That seemed to be very important to you at that time. It, it was, Carol, and um, it was for, for lots of different reasons, but, but for me, you can tap into the way people speak sometimes and you can learn from it. I mean, when I... Sp- Spoke, she spoke about Birdie Grogan and you covered it, Carol, over in, in yeah. Bedike and you're with the Easter Committee as well, obviously. But um, when I asked her about the Scarif Martyrs, the same way with Margaret Hoey, who I interviewed as well from, from, from Scarif, from Paula Gower, the, the emotion changed. You know, just something about the Scarif Martyrs. When I brought that up, particularly with contemporaries, when I had the opportunity with some contemporaries in the earlier years of my research, just the whole body language changed, the motion changed, the, the tone of voice changed when they spoke about them. And the, the, that's one of the key kind of learning points about the Scarif Martyrs is there is such visceral emotion and sadness that, that that was felt by the people at the time and was inherited as well by people. You know, Paddy Rogers, the late Paddy Rogers... I, I spoke to Paddy several times, you know, about it. And obviously Alfie was his uncle. And he often spoke about that, about he, he knew Nora, Alfie's mother. You know, he knew Ned, Alfie's father. And the level of pain in their eyes when the subject came up, um, again, is an indication of, of, of what that whole episode meant for the people of East Clare. And there's also this thing as well that, that you can kind of separate out the experience of the families from the experience of the communities. Uh, at the community because I know they're obviously the families are part of the community but the family the family felt pain you know at an incomprehensible level so did the community who know them but but 
far more quickly the community were able to transform that into pride whereas for the families obviously the, there were generations of, of sadness associated with the mm, story I think that's, 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 very, that's a really really important point about and we saw that I think during even the commemorations that we that we had locally and that were organised locally both on the bridge in Killaloo and in, and, and in Scarf and you know you are looking at still looking at the, uh, the relatives of those families and you know that that was that was their personal history that mm -hmm. was their personal story something that we've shared in as a community yeah. but you know I, one question that comes uh, out of that then I think is to those they say this about writers you know that you live with the characters in your head for so long just on a personal level are they are those four men and the main players in this as much in your head all the time now or now that their tale has been told and has gone to print mm. can you be discharged a little bit from it oh that's a brilliant question um i, I live in killaloo now carol as you know and you, you've been in my house like I, I look out on the lake and there's very uh, very seldom i don't look at that lake and it'll just flash into my mind the four lads on the boat uh, and and the two conways you know being brought up by the auxiliaries so you know i walk in ballycogan and i can see the lake and they'll often flash into my mind when i when i look at the lake there um, so obviously, yeah, I mean, I've been deeply immersed in their story, in the story of the East Clare community. Um, you know, obviously part of the ambition was to try and tell their story at, at a level that, that it was as comprehensive as possible. And, you know, when you do that, I suppose there's a certain point of completion, maybe. Um, but I, I have a strong feeling that you know, the story won't live on just because I've written a book. It'll live on people talk about it. And, you know, th th we're, I'm involved with the Easter Commemoration, you know, uh, Memorial Committee, and as you are, and we'll continue to try and encourage that. So I'm sure I'll, I'm, I'm be moving on to other projects and in, in terms of my writing. Um, but I think the one, I won't ever write a more personal book. Yeah. My, my grandmother danced with Michael Egan, you know, so it's that level of, of proximity as such emotionally and you know I was aware of that you know and I was aware of the challenges of that as well as a historian writing about something that's so connected to your family and your, your community and there are challenges with that but you know I won't write a more personal book uh, and I think they'll always form a part of my consciousness and you know so will the whole episode um, so yeah. just hopefully I've, I've done it well enough. What's a day in the life of Tomas Wickermara like now these days? Because I'm thinking, you know, okay, so you, you uh, outside of being a father and husband and all your personal life, you in your professional life, you've got so many balls juggling in the air. Yeah. You're a heritage consultant. You work for UCC. You're manager of the UCC Folklore Project as well as being a writer, and also very committed in, 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 in uh, voluntary organisations like the East Clare Commemoration. So what's a day like in your life? Because sometimes <laughs> it's hard to get you on the phone. It is, yeah. It's, it's, you're not the only one who's challenged <laughs> with that. Um, it's, 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 it's fairly chaotic, and I, I've always been a very, very busy person because near, you know, almost my whole adult life has been tied up with heritage and, and culture in one way or another so that's something I believe very strongly in so there's never been a, like a 9 to 5 situation for me it's it, it's there's always work I'm doing I'm, I'm, I work late at night I work early in the morning you know um because I believe in everything I'm doing, you know, so I, as you mentioned, there have a heritage consultancy and I have clients all over the country w with that. And like, 
I think I'm a, a good heritage consultant and probably not a great businessman because I spend a lot more time on projects than I probably should because, you know, I'm up in Donegal at the moment, for example, doing a, an audit of memorials relating to the War of Independence, Civil War and World War One right across Donegal. And, um, you know, th- that's hugely important because for each community, like if you come to East Lair, the, the memorial, let's say, at the, at the grave of the Scarf Martyrs or the one on the bridge of Killaloo or the Parkington Graney are really important to local people. So in Donegal, then, it's equally the same for them. And I, I've just taken on Cork as well. So that's massive in terms of Cork, obviously, their role in the revolutionary period. So it's, 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 it's a combination of juggling multiple different projects, multiple different clients who, you know, each of them are committed to their own individual area and trying to be as effective as you can as a, as a heritage professional, but trying to retain the, the, the impulse that brought me into heritage as a young boy um, because I don't want to be the businessman. Yeah. I don't yeah. want to be the, the jargon type of a uh, mm. consultant. Uh, you know, I want you're having a lot of media. I mean, you're, we, we see you quite regularly on the Today Show and, you know, uh, and, and that's, be, that's bringing really history in to the stories covering the burning of Cork, you know, all of the all of those stories, bringing them alive for people. Mm. All of, and, you know, do you enjoy that work? I, I do. Yeah. I mean, but it's the same. It's exactly the same as, as I'm sitting here with you now. I'll come in to anyone and talk to them about heritage and talk to them at the at the from the focus I'm, I'm, I'm talking now in terms of its importance to us, the, 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 the value of knowing those stories about particularly your local area and understanding how important it is for us today. I mean, I've spoken often about the whole issue of the, the uh, history in the curriculum and the downgrading of history by successive governments, it has to be said. Um, and, and then the, the dismay to look on and see that there are millions upon millions of people following somebody called Kim Kardashian. But, you know, how many of them know about Maud Gunn, you know, <laughs> or Nan Hogan? So I suppose I'd always have a certain um, drive to, to when I get an opportunity on whatever it's radio or, or TV to, to, to push that message. But it's the same message always. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't think the conversation would veer towards Kim Kardashian there tomorrow. Tom- <laughs> didn't but, see that one coming. No, but I, I just want to ask you, um, I suppose tra- traditionally um, the field, we'll say, of what you're writing in would have had, uh, without, I don't mean to, uh, you know, reduce the importance of it, but it might have had a limited market. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, like lots of things. Sure. And it might have had a limited market in Ireland. But now, with the whole social media side of things, as you know, your your Facebook account would say has been quite quite active and was active last year in relation to the march and stuff like that. And it was a very encouraging and very nice to see people from all around the world. And that's something that I suppose if you go back to when you know you started researching and writing this book. It wasn't there, mm, yeah. and it's now there. So you know you can connect with people all around the world, and I, I presume that has given, um, has it opened any new avenues to you? Um, yeah, I mean, obviously, I, over the years, I've done a lot of work in America, um, whether that's connected to social media or whatever. Obviously, the world is much more connected. But I think what's critical there is, you know, when, when you look at the human experience, memory, history, trauma, tragedy, triumph, whatever it might be, they're very relatable, you know, when you focus at them on a human level. And so that's what I've always tried to bring to, to my writing and my research is, that, you know, that all of this historical 
you know, all of these historical incidents are, are primarily human experiences. And unless you relate that, then it, be, it becomes difficult to relate to it. So, you know, if, if I give a statistical account or, a, you know, a real positivist approach to the Scarif Martyrs, it'd be very hard for somebody in Argentina to relate to it. But if, if you talk about it at a human level and the, the, the experience of people, people can relate to it. And um, I was very honoured to have Gus Pichot uh, comment on the on the book because he had read it and he related to it as an Argentinian. So I think that is one of the, the key learnings for me, again, from the point of view of memory, um, you know, and, and, and that human experience. If you put a focus on that, people can relate to it. And then whatever the network is or, or infrastructure you use to get that message out there, you know, it will work. And you're, you are right. It makes me feel a bit old that you mentioned it wasn't all there when I started this research, but 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 you're right. Um, the, the infrastructure is there, but again, the message remains very mm-hmm. simple. And very so there the is this global... I mean, to see... I, I had to read that two or three times. First of all, I did know who Gus Pichot... Pich, Pichot. Pichot, yeah. And, uh, you know, the famous uh, Argentinian barbarian rugby player, you know. But I was totally intrigued as to how he'd got involved in it. And he had read Time of the Tans. Was yeah, that, was yeah. That what it was? You see, he, he was based in Dublin for, for a long oh, time yeah. because the World Rugby Headquarters is in Dublin. Oh, yeah. And uh, so after reading that, then he made contact. And uh, like, like with Darvla Murphy, sent him the manuscript, as it was at that time. Now, I, I, I wreck Mercier's heads, or I have done, because I would be always kind of back with something new I might have found some other little thing and they'd be going mad but he read a fairly complete version of it anyway and okay. uh, he was taken with it which is yeah. great to see plans for the launch I I, I understand you're not uh, you can you can tell us when the publication yeah. date you can tell us how we get the book sure absolutely okay yeah, yeah absolutely well it's very soon and uh, I'm told that it'll be released on the 14th and in the shops on the 15th of September and the plan is hopefully to have a launch very soon after that we're working on things it's almost in place um, but obviously it is difficult with COVID to try and get the right um, balance but I, I am hoping and I know a lot of people have been in contact with me about a launch and you know so many people have helped me including yourselves and, and everyone in Scarif Bay Community Radio over the years with this you'd like to have that launch opportunity for, for people to come together and you know just to mark the occasion I suppose so I'm hoping in the middle of September we'll have a launch it'll be in East Clare certainly won't be going out, out of East Clare for it um, and you know hopefully we'll be able to have a reasonable crowd busy times ahead it's published by Mercia Press Mercia Press yeah and you can pre-order it on www.merciapress.ie and there's huge I can tell you there's huge interest in this far far beyond the Scarif and um, I'm reliably told by by my son Huey up in Mayo last night I told him what I was doing today and he says I have four orders in already (laughs) ma'am so he's been talking it up up in Ackle and up in Castle Bar but for the devotees of history now can I just while I have you here just ask you this probably one last question about where a hundred years, okay, so we've cut, we are, if we look to look back on the decade of centenaries, we are now at the period a hundred years ago between truce and treaty. Is there any way, just in a, a, a wee summing up, of where, what would life have been like round here? During those times, hundred yeah. years ago. Yeah, again, brilliant question, Carol. It, it's um, there's probably a sense of relief in in at this point in you know late August 1921. I suppose it will be sinking in that maybe the fighting had stopped because I mean obviously it's a month since the truce or a bit more, a month and a half since the truce. 
and you know there was little bits of skirmishes in the days after the truce so for people who had lived in fear for two two and a half years you know there probably was an apprehension that maybe it hadn't finished mm -hmm. and there were periods where maybe for two three four weeks nothing would happen and then it would but um, I think at this stage a hundred years ago people would be kind of um, the, the general public would be partially relieved obviously apprehensive of what's going to happen next obviously wondering what's going to be the political next moves for the IRA volunteers it's probably a bit more precarious in that you know they're really not sure what's happening there's starting their stories starting to emerge as to what is to be the likely outcome of this truce period obviously they're they're trying to establish you know is is it a is it a truce or is it an end to the conflict you know is there going to be an agreement you know there's there's the the partition has already been discussed because it's already been set up yeah. by the british government um and there's confusion i think within the ira and that increases over time when you when you head towards the obviously the outbreak of the civil war the the it's an interesting kind of question in the sense that where the military, the IRA militarily stood um, with the Brennan leadership at the time, the, the break hadn't came. But I don't know if even the Brennans could have said where they might have stood, you know, because maybe the proposition of whether it's a, a partition state or, or whatever um, has been put up in front of them. So I think the people would probably be predominantly relieved that there isn't fighting there isn't constant raids in their homes yes that has kind of stopped for that period um but obviously nobody is certain as to what the but, future but i was actually surprised to hear um to learn that right up to the end of of 1921 they actually recruited back in towns right up to the very end of mm. oh yeah of which i thought well i just kind of thought the truth you know would have yeah but the british you see weren't sure either no. to be fair i mean like you know this had been a very bitter conflict um you know for for two and a half years and it was very uncertain as to what might happen, you know, as to what the agreement would be. The British might have had a perspective and um, they might have had intelligence that were telling them that the IRA were continuing to train, which they were. Um, so obviously from their perspective, I suppose they had to continue to recruit, uh, you know, to, to bolster up their forces mm -hmm. because there had been significant resignations in the period prior to that too from the RIC. So that required more black and tans to fill those spaces yeah. as well. Um, but uh, certainly there would be uncertainty, you know, obviously when you move into 1922 and when we move into that next year, you'll be facing the civil war centenaries and you know, there's a lot more probably hurt and tension obviously during that. Are you looking to cover that in the form of a book or, or projects or what? Like, have yeah. you a particular interest in that period oh, going I, on to? That's I, your area. Yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, wh whether I'll have the time to, to do something as substantial as I would like. I mean, I obviously have recorded a lot about the Civil War over the years, um, you know, in because I didn't just go and record the War of Independence. I was covering the revolutionary yeah. period generally. So, um, and it's fascinating from the point of view of memory, you know, as well. It is a different set of dynamics from, from, from the perspective of memory so I certainly will be writing about the civil war I don't think I will have the time to, to, to produce a book of the level of let's say the Scarf Martyrs or Time of the Tens just because I just don't have the time um, certainly within the next year or two but uh, I'll certainly be writing about it yeah will it be a big challenge for the state to find a way or do you think of of commemorating the civil war the the, the main activities within the civil war events 
or will this be done at a local level? Is this something which... It needs to be handled at a local level, in my view. Um, there's no probably perfect way because there will be some tension. There will be people who will hold the, the, the perspective that, you know, whatever side of their, their family or community would have taken. Um, I don't think the state should be involved in commemoration um, of the civil war because the state is a product of the civil war and, and one particular aspect of the civil war. But I think the state should support exploration and understanding because the best we can try and do is to to understand the condi- the conditions in the environment in which decisions were made you know the motivations for decisions um, the impact of those decisions and and let that exploration take place let people commemorate their events in the local area and let people respect that whatever whatever events whether it's a free state or a, or a anti-treaty position republican position but um, support the exploration of it at an honest level and I mean if the, the state is a free state right and I mean it's inescapable that the state is a 26 county construct that came from the, the, the free state and it was you know copper fastened by Fianna Fáil governments etc so that remains the product of the free state position of the civil war so the state can't be a, 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 you know an independent broker in that context because it's not going to undermine itself you know by saying that you know no, it was so. the wrong decision yeah. uh, you know so it should ex- support the exploration support and understanding of you know what that period was like and you know wh- how those decisions were made and ultimately the impact of those decisions and it'll be a failure if they don't look at one of the most significant consequences which is the six county state in the north of Ireland mm-hmm. which was another product of the civil war so we can't just look at a civil war through the means of what happened here yeah, in, in the absolutely. in the civil war in the six 26 county but what was the consequence in terms of partition? Well, that makes me really confident that we're going to have loads more of these type of discussions around (laughs) this table. And um, just one question about the book. Will it be stocked locally? Would there be plans to stock it locally? Not everybody will be able to maybe go to... No, I've encouraged Mercier to to ensure... You see, there's a a, a con... Uh, a sort of a complicated sort of network where they work with a supplier but I've insisted that they will stock it locally in in Scarif and Killaloo etc there is a digital version I believe but you'll find that out on Mercier Press I know that they were uh, they were on to me recently about that there will be an online version of it Uh, I don't know is that later or something but um, but I've encouraged them to stock it locally and Thomas could I ask you um, just in relation to um, we'll say Mercier Press and publishing and all the rest of it you know uh, publishing no more than 15 20 years ago is a lot different than what it is now um are as you said you know a digital version that you can sort of read now wouldn't have existed years ago and but but of course that can't be autographed by by the author no it's not the same thing you can't feel it in your hands you can't can't feel it in, in your hands but you know um would say how how does the whole publishing side of things sort of work to the extent is it do you go to them with a, a an idea do they come to you or you know what way does it go yeah it's uh, essentially with Mercier Press I got to know the the head of Mercier Press over the years and she had been aware of the work I'd been doing and it, it was going back to I suppose what became the time of the tens and you know we had a discussion about it and she invited me to submit uh, what's called a, a book proposal to Mercier Press. Now, I had submitted proposals to other um, publishing houses over the years and had been rejected. And all, I presume, writers of every ilk, uh, you know, have to have to go through that. But I was delighted with Mercier Press because, fairness, in the conversations we'd had and then with the proposal, they immediately took to the work. And other publishers had looked at it and either said that... Um, 
you know, maybe, for example, the time of the Thames was too local, or maybe they didn't think there'd be a market for the oral history. And now, thankfully, with the time of the Thames, the sales were, were very, very good, and Mercia Press were delighted with that, because, like we've been talking about this morning, people are interested in that, and particularly from the memory perspective. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not all publishers will have the same view, and, and even not all people within the publishers will have the same view, so sometimes... Don't They're an know. old independent publishing they house, are, aren't they? They, they, they are. kind of specialise as well in, in historical... They do, well. yeah, yeah, and they've done a lot on reporting public history over the years as well and they've been quite brave actually yeah. back in the 70s and 80s and what they had they had published so and once you enter that then obviously you enter a contract situation um where you have to provide the 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 manuscript by a certain date and then there's the process of editing and copy editing and all the rest of it i i'm I, I'm, I'm very obviously i'm used to working with clients in terms of my professional life but i'd say i'm a bit of a nightmare for mercy because like i mentioned i, I keep coming back when with when maybe it, I, this has Agenda. to go in i'll find some <laughs> small thing that has to go in and yeah, yeah. you know and then because we were delayed from last october to till, till now um i did find some some new stuff in the last 12 months that we had a fairly heated argument about getting in but i, I got it in anyway well so well, well it's great it's great in a way that you know th- those things can now happen you, you know because uh you know before if there was a book a print set it, it, that yeah. was it you know yeah. it was done yeah. and you, you couldn't come back and uh, adjust it whereas you know you said if if over the next few years if you get you know even from the results of you know when you when you get to launch the book people may come forward because you, you've mentioned alluded to that before that wh- when you, you talk about event or we'll say the 90th mm. anniversary or stuff like that people come forward or somebody knows someone that knew somebody yeah. and they'd like to talk to you and you're sort of there that oh, I have two extra pages here I could <laughs> add into this but it, it's crazy you're right and it, it does um, it has happened all through the years and I believe strongly in that and engaging with anybody who, who, who wants to talk to me and you know that's going to happen when the book comes out I know there's people going to come forward I'll probably be part of my mind saying why yeah. didn't you come before yeah. the book was published but you know that's the nature of it there is so much out there and it can be some small little family connection and sometimes maybe people hadn't realised because of the way history has been written too they mightn't realise that their little st- their story about their grand aunts uh, you know having been in love with Alfie you know as yeah. an example or whatever mightn't have been historically significant yeah. but it's massively significant yeah. at that level yeah. uh, that I'm talking about so um, yeah th- so look yeah that, that's great that you have had the opportunity as I say to, to make those amendments and that and yeah. get it in as much uh, as and, and to get your hands on it and to get, and to get all those stories mercierpress.ie Scarf Mark uh, War, Murder and Memory in East Clare is available uh, for pre-order at seventeen ninety nine, and nineteen ninety nine is the, the full price of it. And uh, yeah. and uh, if you're around East Clare, I'd imagine over the next few few uh, weeks and months. Uh, I'd be able to get and a, I think a for the coffee. for the McNamara family and friends, you know that's what you're getting for Christmas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I miss McNamara as well. So <laughs> listen, all the rest to say is my Coupla Fockel, Ganairi Lath, August Berbu Makara. Uh, Gorf Mila Mila Amahagat Tmas Longafal. Gorf Amahagat Hankar.